Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. Can you, can you see me behind this very large lectern? I know your two pastors are very tall, and I'm not that tall. In fact, when I came into church this morning, the, the lady at the front door looked at me, and she was obviously trying to work out who I was, and she said, um, oh, hello. And I said, hi, my name's Lewis. I'm the pastor. Uh, I'm not the pastor. I'm, by the way, James is not losing his job. I'm not the pastor, but I'm the preacher today. And she said, oh, I thought you were a jockey. <laughs> so, I might get my horse if you can't see me. So, but it's a good thing to be here. Uh, Happy New Year to each of you. And it is such a joy and responsibility to be given the noble task of preaching God's word to you, and it's something I don't take lightly. In fact, one of my favorite preachers of bygone era, Dr. Michael Lloyd-Jones, said that the most urgent need in the Christian church is true biblical preaching. And so I hope today that my sermon, the sermon you're about to sit under, qualifies as true biblical preaching, because if it does, then you're going to be edified. If it's just fluff, then... You may be tantalized, but you won't be transformed. And so I pray that as we sit under God's mighty voice in Scripture, that this sermon blesses you today as we consider the theme of joy. And so if you've got your Bibles, please go ahead and grab those or your device and locate Philippians, the book of Philippians. And once you've located Philippians, please jump into chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 20 and read down to verse 7 of chapter 4. So Philippians 3, verse 20. This is God's holy word. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we'll be like his glorious body. What a moment that will be. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Here's our verse, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious. And verse 6 is probably on your fridge. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, would you bless, richly bless the preaching and the reading and the applying of your holy word today. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the first 
Christian songs I sung as a newbie follower of Jesus went, rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. Who's familiar with the song? Yep. Most of you. Remember the chorus? Rejoice, rejoice again, I say rejoice. Clearly, the song is based on our passage, verse 4. And like the song, this exhortation is straightforward to understand. There's nothing too complicated about it. Simply rejoice in the Lord. Always again, I say rejoice. But if you're anything like me, when annoying things happen, my immediate response, my spiritual reflex is not always to rejoice in the Lord. Just the other day, I was trying to be a domesticated husband by doing the laundry and the load of washing finished and I opened the lid to the washing machine and shock horror, someone had left a tissue in the pocket. It was possibly me. And now this tissue had been mutilated all through the laundry. And my response wasn't, rejoice in the Lord always. But my response went something like, ah! Because I was really busy this particular day. I was like, now I've got to flick every single piece of clothing and look at the size of my family. That's a lot of clothes. That's just a silly example. But when real big issues raise their ugly head in my life, again, maybe like me, your response, my response, it's not always to rejoice in the Lord, always. But maybe like me, you give in to worry. You give in to fretting. You don't find yourself worshipping, but worrying. You don't find yourself rejoicing, but fretting. And so as we consider this important theme of rejoicing in the Lord constantly, habitually, we're going to explore this passage by thinking about the following two things. A very simple outline. Number one, the need, the critical need to be happy in God, to, to habitually rejoice in Jesus. And, and number two, the way to be happy in God. For those of you taking notes, I've entitled this sermon, Happy in Our Happy God. So first up, the need to be happy in God. The theme of joy permeates and saturates this book from beginning to end. This is a joyful book written from a joyful Christian. We know this because the phrases joy and rejoicing are mentioned 16 times in just four short chapters. Paul, although, as we saw in the video, is sitting in a Roman prison cell, a rat-infested prison cell, is still happy in God. And he's exhorting these believers to do likewise, to find their delight in him. In, in chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Paul says to us, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord, exclamation mark. And then, obviously, in our text, he gives us the double imperative, rejoice in the Lord always again. It's not enough just to say it once, but again, rejoice in the Lord. Clearly, he wants Christians, all of us, to find our delight, to find our happiness, not in happy circumstances, or favorable situations, but in God himself, the blesser. Now, it's, it's totally fine, of course, to rejoice in God when you discern and experience his blessings. 
But if you only do that, if we only do that, then we are going to be pendulum swinging Christians. We're going to be moody Christians because we'll only rejoice in him when things are favorable. But when things go belly up and they're hard and we experience trials, then we're going to be cranky. We're not going to be rejoicing in the Lord. And so Paul doesn't want us to be controlled by circumstances at all. We know this because he says himself in verse 10, chapter 4, it's not on the screen, but it's in your Bible. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. So that was a happy circumstance for him and he's, and he's thanking God. But, but notice what he says next. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need for I have learned the to be content whatever the circumstances. Happy circumstances, Paul, praise God. Bleak, perplexing circumstances, Paul, praise God. And he wants all believers to do likewise. Paul wasn't a superhuman. He was like us, full of the Holy Spirit. And yet he had the ability to worship and praise God in the midst of trying situations and trials. And he calls us to do likewise. Of course, this doesn't mean <laughs> that we're to be happy-go-lucky, glass half full kind of people all the time. No, we know, you know from experience that this life is full of brokenness. And full of pain at times. And one of the best summaries, I think, of the Christian life in this broken world is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. Where Paul says, what? Sorrowful. Sorrowful. Yet. So much spiritual freight carried by that word, yet. Yet, always rejoicing. And again, not rejoicing in the happy circumstances, but happy, uh, happy God, rejoicing in the God who carries us through all our bleak, perplexing circumstances. Last year, I was diagnosed with AML, which stands for acute myeloid leukemia, essentially blood cancer. And it was painful. It was so difficult to experience that as a, as a family with with, with young kids. And I remember after my induction round, they call it your induction round, your first round of chemo. They call it induction round to kind of soften the blow. It's like, it's, it's, a, it's a month of, of poison being injected into you to put you into remission. And after that induction round, I saw my specialist and my specialist said, it didn't work. This induction round of chemo did not work, which means you're going to have to come back into hospital for up to six weeks to experience and undergo further, more extensive chemotherapy. And, and I remember going home and <laughs> I need tissues. My, my wife will tell you, I, I, was, I was so sorrowful. I, I, I just crumbled next to the bed on my knees and I was weeping, I was, I was sobbing and, and Natalie had her arm around me. I said, I'm so sad. Just, just the thought of going back into hospital, be, being pulled away from my family, being so uncertain and, and confused. Will I even live? Will I make it? The two friends that I made in hospital are now dead. And so, you know, 
there is much sorrow in this life. And I experienced much sorrow. But there was a glorious yet in my Christian experience. And I pray that there would be a glorious yet in yours. I was able, we as a family, were still able to rejoice in him, even in the midst of that painful hardship. And this is what Paul is exhorting us to here. Yes, sorrowful, yet. Come on, is there a yet in your Christian experience? I pray there is. Always rejoicing, not in the happy times only, but in the one who carries us through all times, good, bad, ugly. You can say amen. Thank you. Now the question at this point is, okay, Paul, fair enough. It's, it's obviously a lot better, wiser, smarter to be happy in the Lord than not to be happy in him. But, but why here, Paul? Why do you exhort us in this particular passage to find our joy in God, to be happy in him? Now, when we, we, we look at the immediate context, the surrounding context, we can discern, we can ascertain at least two main reasons for why we are to rejoice in the Lord daily. And I'm going to add a third because of its importance. And you can, you can summarize the three reasons that I'm going to give you in one word. And that one word is survival. Survival. That is, habitually rejoicing in God is a matter of, it's a question of survival. How so? Well, first up, local church survival. Local church survival. That is, the survival of the local church. And this local church... Tungabi Baptist Church included, largely depends on its members being happy in God. Let me, let me back up and, and join the pieces up for you. So in verse 4, obviously, rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. In verse 2, Paul pleads with these women, Euodia Syndicate, to agree in the Lord. We, we're not too sure what their disagreement was about. Maybe it was a personal, personal issue or a theological point we're not too sure but but it was serious enough for the apostle to plead with them and, and urge them to reconcile why because their disagreement was causing a real issue in the life of this church the church was being destabilized because of their argument and so in this context he says okay rejoice in the lord verse two agree in the lord now is there a connection between agreeing in the Lord and rejoicing often in the Lord. And I would say to you, there is a profound connection. Let me, let me wheel in Charles Spurgeon to back me up here. Listen to what Spurgeon says in his sermon on this passage. He says, people who are very happy, especially those who are very happy in the Lord, are not apt either to give offense or take offense. You know this from experience, right? Their minds are so sweetly occupied with higher things that they are not easily distracted by the little troubles that naturally arise among such imperfect creatures as we are. Listen to what he says next. Joy in the Lord is the cure for all discord. Joy in the Lord then drives away the discords of earth. It's true. When we are happy in the Lord, it's a lot more likely that we're going to agree in the Lord. That is, maintain church unity. 
But if we are a grumpy bunch, a cranky bunch, although this church may congregate, this congregation will not be joyfully united as it goes about its mission in the world, which would be tragic. And so can you, can you see that rejoicing in the Lord is just, just a nice thing to have? But it's a matter of local church survival. I wonder, are you rejoicing in the Lord? Are you experiencing as a fellowship? Not just we're getting along, but this true joyful unity that, that, that carries you on as, as you're about Jesus' mission in this broken world. So that's, that's the first, local church survival. Number two, personal survival. What do I mean, what do I mean here? Well, Surviving the daily onslaught of anxiety, again, largely depends on us rejoicing in God. Again, Spurgeon, and, and you can tell that I'm a Charles Spurgeon cheerleader. He says, brethren, notice that the apostle, after he had just said, rejoice in the Lord always, commanded the Philippians to be anxious for nothing, thus implying that joy in the Lord is one of the best preparations, listen, for the trials of this life. And allow me to testify, after almost dying twice last year and undergoing, what, eight rounds of chemotherapy and a full bone marrow transplant that made me look like Gollum. That's what my kids would say. I mean, how cruel kids are. They used to call me, what do they, what do you used to call? They used to call me Voldemort when I came. Because I, I look like Voldemort. On the brink of death, let me testify that Spurgeon is absolutely right. This is exactly Paul's point. That rejoicing in the Lord always makes us the type of Christian who's better prepared when the trials come knocking at your door. But sadly, tragically, the opposite is also true. When we fail to trust in him, look to him, delight in him, be happy in him, rejoice in him habitually, then when the trials come knocking, we'll be found wanting. And often we'll be found worrying and fretting, stressed out of our brain. Church, as we've already seen, although sorrow and singing can and must coexist in the life of the believer, listen, stressing and singing cannot coexist. They do not coexist. Worry and worship are incompatible. Fretting and rejoicing don't mix. Interestingly, the, the, the Greek word here, anxious, in verse 6, has this very graphic image. And it's, it's, it's the image of your mind being fractured. Your mind being pulled in various directions. Now, now you know from experience, right? We know from experience, when that happens, that there's, there's little rejoicing in God. True? But when, when? We form this habit of when, when, the, when the sun is shining, when, when there's dark and gloominess and, and we're still looking at him, we're still clinging to him, cleaving to him, rejoicing in him, that will better prepare us so that when then the trials come, we will be in a position, verse 6, of prayer and petition, that will be our spiritual posture, with what? What's the key word? You're a quiet lot. Thanksgiving. Which is what? It's, it's looking at him. It's rejoicing in him. It's essentially saying, I, I, I can't discern your providence. I can't, I can't discern what you're up to. But I know 
internally, instinctively, because I look at the cross and I know your precious promises that you are good and you are in control. And so I'm going to thank you, which expresses what your trust in him. And what's the result? Verse seven, the peace of God, this supernatural, otherworldly, glorious, transcendent peace, God's very own peace, which will be like a warrior in your mind. Yeah, no longer pulled to pieces, but complete shalom at rest and your heart too in Christ Jesus. Amen. So this is why rejoicing in the Lord is so critical. It is, it's not just a nice, cute, cuddly thing to experience. It's a matter of survival. And so rejoicing in the Lord needs to be seen as a warlike strategy that will enable us to overcome the temptation to worry, the daily onslaught of anxiety. So local church survival depends on us rejoicing in the Lord. Personal survival. Number three, and I've thrown this one in because of its importance. Evangelistic survival. Or you might say missional survival. And allow me again to, to take you to my, my cancer ward. Last year, I spent over 120 days in, in hospital last year. And as I said, it, it wasn't pretty. And I remember this one particular morning, I think I was undergoing my fourth round of chemo and I looked like Gollum and, and I was very gaunt and, 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 and just skin and bones. And yet I remember dragging myself this one morning out of my hospital bed to make my soul happy in God, which, which looked like me just grabbing the word, grabbing my Bible. And of course, you've guessed it, a Charles Spurgeon book. And, and I just spent time with Jesus. And as I was finishing up, a nurse burst into my room. And I'd never seen this nurse before, Filipino nurse, never met this nurse before. And, and she noticed that I was reading my Bible. And so that struck up a conversation. It was a really fruitful conversation because at the end of it, I said to her, when you go home tonight, make sure you make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. And the reason why I said that is because I'd read Spurgeon that day, one of his prayers where he said, today is God's day. Tomorrow is the devil's day. And in context, he was saying, today is the day of salvation. And so if you feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit, you, you, you repent, you, you trust in Christ. But, but don't delay, don't put Jesus off because tomorrow is the devil's day. You might not get that opportunity again. And so I explained all this to this nurse and then she left my room. About three months after, I was back in hospital and this same nurse burst into my room, this casual nurse. And the interesting thing, I wasn't her patient this particular day, but she had read the registry, oh, Lewis Barron, and, and she made a point of visiting me. And when she, <laughs> when she came into my room, she had this beaming smile, like from, from, from ear to ear. All right, she was glowing. And she said to me, you remember me? I said, I remember you. And she said, do you remember what you told me to do? I said, yes, I do. And she said, I did it. I did it. And, and I, amen. And I, I could tell, I could tell by her countenance that she was born again, that she had experienced the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to, thanks, Darren. It's Darren, isn't it? Yeah. My point is this church how did that spiritual transaction come about it came about 
with a weak patient, a weak man, a weak guy dragging himself out of his sickbed in order to make his soul happy in God. So that by the time this nurse actually met me, she could tell that there was something different about me. And that something different was the one who was in me, joyfully in me, namely Jesus Christ. So that when I actually started to witness, it was more winsome, it was more plausible, it was more loving, and therefore it was more powerful. You see, church, the great apologetic in the world is not some slam dunk argument where we win the debate. The great apologetic is joy in the Lord, which is encouraging for the majority of you because only a few of you are Tim Keller, right? But the majority of you are like, oh, that apologetic stuff. The good news is, yeah, I'm into apologetics, but apologetics without the joy of the Lord will be fruitless. But if you are full of the joy of Christ, wow, that will make your witness so winsome. And so can you see that joy in the Lord is a big deal? No wonder why George Muller, the great evangelist who was responsible for looking after thousands of orphans in Bristol, England, he said this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. Amen? So question, is your soul happy in the Lord this morning? Good on you. It's a matter of survival, local church survival. It's a matter of personal survival. Surviving the daily onslaught of anxiety and worry and the temptations of the enemy. And it's a matter of missional survival. Joy in God becomes the powerful apologetic, making the gospel more plausible in our unhappy, broken world. Now, important question. As I blow my nose. We've considered the need to be joying for in God. But now the question is, okay, how do we cultivate and nurture this joy in God? In other words, what's the way, the means to be happy in God? Now I've alluded to some things, but I've got some pointers for you. And, and what I'm about to share is insufficient, right? This is not the full picture. And when we're talking about an emotion like joy, all right, we, we need to have endless qualifications about different personalities and whatnot. No, but I know you're cutting me some slack here. All right? So these two pointers, which, which I trust will go a long way to help you find more joy in God. The first is this. Ponder. Ponder. That is, we need to ponder the happy reality that our God is happy. You see, Paul could exhort these believers to always rejoice in the Lord because he deeply believed that joy is always located and found and experienced in the Lord. Does that make sense? Just say yes to make me feel better. Meaning there is such a thing as joy because there is such a God 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who has eternally enjoyed himself in the Godhead. Father enjoying the Son, Son enjoying the Father. The Holy Spirit enjoying the Son and the Father for all eternity. And so God is intrinsically, transcendently, eternally joyful. He is a happy God. Now, the challenge is, if I was to ask you, okay, list for me your top five attributes of God. I know instinctively, because I've been a pastor for a little while, that a lot of you would say, uh, okay, yeah, God's holiness, uh, his power, his love, uh, his wisdom, his grace. I wonder how many of you would say joy. You see, I've read theological textbooks, and a few of them mention that this is an attribute of God. Which I think when you read scripture, it's everywhere. Let me give you a sample. If you're thinking, this guy's preaching heresy. Well, let's let's have a look. Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence is what? No, not joy. Fullness of joy. Tricked you, caught you out. Yes. Why is there fullness of joy in the presence of God? Because our God is full of joy. Zephaniah 3, 17. He what? Rejoices over his people with singing. If we are in Christ, and that's a big if, if we're in Christ, if we truly turned away from all moralistic, legalistic versions of Christianity and, and put our faith in the Savior, then when you came in to sing today, God was already here singing over you. How does that make you feel? Not clucking his tongue, tapping his foot, rolling his eyes. That's not the way he treats his beloved. Do we always please him? Like, you know we don't. Doesn't mean he's not thrilled to have us in his family and he sings over us songs of salvation. Does that make you joyful? What about this? Luke 15, 10. Jesus says, when one sinner repents, there is much joy in the presence of the angels. And in that passage, obviously, Jesus talks about the lost coin, the lost sheep, and and the lost son. And and central to each of those three stories is a father or or, or someone, a shepherd, who rejoices. God is joyful. I love this one. John 15, 11. Jesus says, my joy. And think about it. (laughs) The eternal son of God's joy. He says, my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. This is Jesus' desire for his people. Not to have just an eeny, teeny, weeny little experience of joy, but his very own joy burning within us. Wow. Matthew 25, 23. You bored yet? Or should I keep going with these? Keep going. Good. I was anyway. On the day of judgment, Jesus says, well done, my good and faithful servant. He will turn to his faithful. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then what, what, what will he add? What will he say? Come and share in what? Your master's happiness. This is why glory, heaven is going to be so wonderful, jaw-droppingly beautiful, heart-achingly glorious because our God is happy. Our God is joy. We're going to experience that forever. And we'll never get bored of it. It's going to be wonderful. You can say hallelujah, Jesus, if you want. Maybe not. That would make you more like a Pentecostal church. We, we don't want that, right? I can say that because I used to be a Pentecostal pastor. Right? So. Galatians 5, 22. One of the fruits of the Spirit is what? Dot, 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 joy. Last one. 
Hebrews 1.9, the father prophesies about his son and says, oh, you will be anointed with the oil of joy. So this is just a sampling. God is, yes, gloriously, majestically, eternally, intrinsically, holy, 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 Isaiah 6, but also he's gloriously, intrinsically, eternally, happy, happy, happy. And if it's true, and I believe it is, that we become what we behold, then beholding our God as eternally happy in the Godhead ought to rub off on us, cause us to be, to be, to be happy in him more happy, delighted in him, this God who is intrinsically happy. In his excellent book, Adam Ramsey says this in his chapter entitled, God is Happy, the Experience of Delight. He says, right, and he's an Australian author, pastor. He says, how you picture God, this is classic, when, you, when, you, when he speaks to you through the scriptures, profoundly matters. It is the difference between thinking you're hearing from a God who wants you to change your life so that he can stand being around you. Sadly, so many Christians view God this way. And a God who wants to embrace you so that your delight in him increasingly changes your life. This is how true transformation takes place. It's the difference, notice, it's the difference between the rotten stench of moralism and legalism and the fragrant aroma of the gospel, so profoundly true. You know, I'm going to get down now on this because I need to illustrate something. If I, if I say to you, if I say to RJ, I say, RJ, come here. Right? And, and I get his attention. And when RJ looks at me, I'm frowning. And I've kind of tapped my foot and I've got one of my fists clenched. Now, what is he thinking? He's thinking, I'm not going to approach him. He's going to bash me in. Now, listen, if I use... Exactly the same words. Ready? Come here. Hey, come here, big boy. <laughs> same words, but noticed, interpreted profoundly differently based on his perception of my demeanor. Is the penny drop? How do you view God? How do you perceive his demeanor toward you, his child, son, daughter? He's singing over you. He sang with warmth in his eyes, arms stretched out. He's got the proof. Grace, God has. You come here. No wonder why Paul says, is it Paul? No, the author of the Hebrews. I don't know who that was. Come to the throne of grace with boldness. Boldness, not. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in you. Amen. So we need to ponder this happy reality that our God is happy in himself. And that salvation is, listen, him bringing us in to the eternal dance of joy within the Godhead. I should just say amen and leave the stage right now, but I've got to go on because there's something else I need to add. Secondly, the second P is preach. Meaning we need to preach this glorious gospel to ourselves. You see, much like worry and anxiety, feelings of guilt and self-condemnation for your sin, listen, suffocate the joy of God in your heart. Guilt for sin functions like a fire blanket thrown over 
Cast over your joy in God and his gospel. And this is Satan's main aim. His main aim in your life is to stifle and suffocate your joy in God and his gospel. Look, he knows, and I don't want to give him too much glory by focusing on him, but I need to, because the Bible does. Roaring lion, prowling around, seeking whom he may devour, right? He knows that he cannot destroy your salvation. He knows better than anyone, verse 3 of chapter 4, which says, our names are in the book of life. He knows, verse 20 of chapter 3, which says, we are citizens of heaven. He knows that our lives have been placed in Jesus' grace, God's hands. And he knows that Jesus said, none can pluck you from my hand. He knows that. He knows he cannot ultimately destroy your salvation. But what can he do? And what does he tragically do? in way too many Christians' lives. He suffocates them. He ruins their salvation by suffocating their joy in God. And his chief, chief strategy to bring about this malicious evil end is by making you feel guilty and rotten about your sin. Because when you feel rotten, you don't feel like worshiping. Come on. You know this from experience, that besetting sin. Oh, I've done it again. In that moment, you don't feel like worshiping. You feel like hiding. Back to the Garden of Eden again, right? Hiding from God. And so uh, he, he has his tanks pointing at your joy in Jesus. Because he knows that a joyful Christian is a powerful Christian, a fruitful Christian. And so what's the strategy? As I conclude here, well, the strategy is to have the superior tank of the gospel to combat his con condemning lies and accusations. Now, don't you find it insightful and, and so encouraging that after Paul in our, in our passage here, after he pleads with these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord, immediately, what does he do? Verse 3. He says, whose names are written in the book of life. Now, it's, it's not hard to imagine these two ladies feeling very guilty and full of shame for their behavior. It's not hard to imagine, right? I mean, they're being addressed by the apostle, the one who founded the church. And he's gone public with their sin. How would you feel? Like, Thanks, Paul. <laughs> so glad you pointed out my sin. And you can imagine, no doubt, the accuser of the brethren worming his way into their conscience, making them feel rotten. And so Paul, as a good pastor, anticipates this and says, look, yes, you have sinned. You are sinning. Yes, it's bringing uh, friction to the church. The, the, the church is being threatened. But, but, but hey, I just want you to know, I want you to know that your names are in the book of life. That is, he reminds them, straight after rebuking them, he reminds them, you're still in the family of God. In other words, he gives them the gospel. And this is what we need constantly when we give in to that besetting sin. Fly off the hangle, give in to lust, spend too much money. Don't love how we ought to love. Love ourselves with all our heart, mind, soul and strength and not God nor our neighbor. We feel right. What do we need? We need the glorious gospel. To preach it to ourselves. I remember one of the first books I ever read was by a guy called Jerry Bridges. Many of you would know that name. And he wrote a little book, wonderful book, called The Discipline of Grace. 
And in the first three chapters, he just spells out the need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily, daily, daily. Because if we don't, if we don't, then we're going to succumb to the feelings of despair and self-condemnation. And so when we sin in the presence of God, we, we, we ought to pray something like this. Father, I, I feel so rotten right now. I've sinned again this way. And I've done it in broad daylight in your presence. But, and here comes the gospel, but. Your word says in Isaiah 53 verse 3 that your son, my saviour, momentarily became a man of sorrows. So that in him, faith in him, I would never experience the eternal sorrow of hell. That's what I deserve. But, but, but joy now and forevermore because of your sweet grace in my life. And so, Lord, would you give me grace to believe right now that I am forgiven, completely forgiven, completely washed, completely accepted, completely adopted in the beloved. You see? And once you preach that gospel to yourself like that, it won't be long before you experience that joy again, that gutsy guilt, right? You'll, you'll be emboldened by him. No wonder why church, Isaiah 52, 7, calls the gospel good news of happiness. This gospel is supposed to make us happy in our happy God. It is our tank against the enemy. My prayer for you, my prayer in this life shot through with pain and hostility. And I don't know where the Lord will lead some of you. Some of you young people, maybe God will call you to be missionaries in a distant land. And you may end up bleeding and dying for Christ. But if, if you have the joy of the Lord burning in your soul, you'll be able to testify to him without losing your nerve. But you'll be bold and everyone else. Oh, my prayer for you, my desire for you, as it is for myself and my family, is that we will be found rejoicing in the Lord. So that on that day, when Christ returns, we will forever sing with him and the redeemed. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let's stand, church. Father, thank you that our names are written in heaven. And you tell us, Jesus, to rejoice over this glorious reality. And it is a reality. Lord, I pray for every single one here who has lost sight of Christ, who believes that their past sin has been covered, but now it's down to their own performance to maintain their salvation. That is not the gospel. And I just pray for them, Lord, that you would help them receive the full gospel. Christ has died for them, past, present, future sin, that they are yours and you sing over them. Lord, I pray for those who are 
hearing this message and they're, they're drawn to Christ, but they've never truly given their life to Jesus. I ask that by your spirit that you would open their hearts to believe and that today, this day of salvation, they would make Christ King and Savior of their life. And the Lord, I pray, would you enable them not to delay and keep putting it off because today is God's day, but tomorrow is Satan's day. Lord, as we sing now, as your people, may we sing with strength. You are so good. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Bless you, church.